hey everybody, uh, if this is your first time here or if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church Online Services. We're so glad that you decided to spend your Sunday with us uh, digitally. Um, I decided that we were going to finish out the summer, a very strange summer to be sure, um, studying a particular book. Uh, we, we typically do that in the, in the summer times. Um, but here we are kind of late in the, uh, in the summertime season, you know, choosing a book. And, and we, we, we did. We chose the book of James, the New Testament letter uh, from this particular uh, writer. And, you know, it fits our understanding of discipleship. That's the, the best way to describe it. Because, you know, for, for those of us who call Thrive Home, what we're attempting to do is, is to really understand how following Jesus actually impacts our daily lives. It's a 24-7, 365 kind of thing. It's not just about what you believe, but but how you actually try to live that thing out, how it impacts your decisions and, and your behaviors and your relationships and, and all of those things that make up um, our lives. So how it works itself out, IRL, in real life, hence the title of, of this study. And the first chapter certainly fit that. Um, there were some challenging things in it, but at the same time, there's some very practical things. that it, it, it helped us understand how faith actually works, especially in the midst of trials, right out of the box. Count it joy when you experience difficulty. And uh, certainly the pandemic qualifies, right? Are we finding joy in it? That's a real life type of thing. And we find that over and over throughout the, out the book. And um, then you get to chapter two. And you, you think chapter one was challenging. Chapter two takes it to a whole new level. And uh, um, I would say if, if you've been reading along or if you've been reading ahead, you, you probably know what I'm talking about. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start in um, uh, James chapter 2. I'm going to read the first few verses and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer some thoughts about it. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there um, or you might want to punch it in uh, to your Bible app. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen here if you can read it. So here we go. James says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, this is a church meeting, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. So he makes his statement right, right away. He says, you should not show favoritism. And then he gives an example. So we now have an illustration that we can work with. He goes on, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ouch. He gives this example and then he makes kind of that editorial comment. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich, uh, sorry, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, this is important because 
this was a charge made um, by the Old Testament prophets against Israel often. And here we have James doing the same thing to the church. So keep that little bit in mind. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, at first glance, this is pretty straightforward. Um, there's a lot of social justice in here when we're talking about caring for the, um, caring for the poor. Or maybe uh, we could say don't elevate uh, rich over the poor. But you can see it. It's, it's, it's quite plain. However, I think there's something else that might be going on. Um, and some context uh, is going to add some texture to this. Uh, it's always about the context. Because it's so easy to pull these things um, out of, uh, of the scriptures and just get them to say whatever you want them to say. But there's, there's some other things that are happening here that we need to pay attention to. Um, and I think we need this texture, especially if we want this to work itself out in real life, in our real life. Um, not just the ancient world. So the first question, the first thing to, to think about contextually is, to whom is James writing? Well, we know from chapter 1, verse 1, that he's writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered um, throughout um, the Middle East, um, who are in a place not where James is located, because he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. So it is a scattered group of Jewish Christians. And, uh, and so we have to pay attention to that nuance a little bit. And, and to that end, um, we also get a little, uh, little addition to, to the context here in, in the fact that uh, he mentions this idea of the law. The law. Now, he's not talking about the Roman legal system because, number one, the Roman legal system isn't interested in sin. And, in fact, I would... I would argue that the Roman legal system, um, at least much of it, was devoted to preserving um, favoritism toward the rich, especially the Roman rich, especially Caesar and the aristocracy. So that can't be what the law is that he's talking about. This is a decidedly Jewish thing. He's writing to Jews, and so he's using Jewish references. And so when we see this idea of the law, we're talking about Torah. We're talking about the first five books of the Bible, the guidelines established by God with Israel way back in the book of Exodus that would uh, determine the type of relationship that God would have with his people. Torah, the law. This was central to their understanding. Now, please remember, James wrote this in the first century. And at the time, the only Bible that the early Christians had were the Jewish texts. Uh, it wasn't the New Testament as we, we understand it today. And so when James talks about breaking the law, he's going back to this notion of Torah, to the Old Testament scriptures. And while the Torah made certain protections for the poor, I think they, there might be something else that's in play here. And this idea of, of protection and favoritism and partiality and, and all of that is threaded in various places throughout the Old Testament, um, especially in the Torah. But I want to highlight just a couple, uh, just to point some things out, because I think 
Um, this will begin to, to enrich our discussion a little bit. So I want first, I want to take a look at Exodus chapter 23. Here it is. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Remember, this is God's guidelines for his people. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Well, now, now wait a second. Um, that's a little strange. Don't show favoritism to a poor person. Now, just a couple of verses later in verse 6, we see this. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. So don't show favoritism, but also do not deny justice to the poor. So these two things that are almost held in tension, at least it, it seems that way. Perhaps we can get a better sense in the book of Leviticus. In uh, uh, chapter 19, we find this in verse 15. Here it is. Do not pervert justice. There's that phrase again. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. This is a very interesting take on on the idea of rich and poor. Because obviously, um, there are protections for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable. And we see Jesus talk about that in the New Testament as well. But in the Old Testament law, there is um, partiality towards the poor and favoritism to the great, both of which are condemned. Don't do that. There's a prohibition against those. The injunction goes both ways. And so scripture, I think, condemns partiality of all sorts, including to the poor. And here in James, though, and I think this is important for us to remember, is that um, the word that he's receiving, what the news that he's getting from the church outside of Jerusalem, and maybe even in his own church to a cer certain extent, is that this is not happening that we're not talking about, you know, legal things, but there's a certain amount of favoritism that's being um, shown to some and not to others. And the Old Testament's very clear. There's no partiality here. And so it seems to me that there's another Jewish idea that, that kind of flows underneath this entire thing. And, and stick with me here because I think this is going to be really useful. But that idea, that Jewish idea, is the one called shalom. And you've probably heard this. If you were to go to Israel today, you would be greeted with shalom. And the rough translation is peace be with you. Uh, in fact, as I understand it, in Arabic, the term is very similar. It's salam, and it means roughly the same type of thing. Peace be with you. But this notion of shalom is throughout Jewish writings. And we can, we can uh, actually see it in various places uh, in the Old Testament as well. But we have to have a, 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 a robust understanding of shalom. Because when we talk about this idea of peace, most of us tend to think of peace as inner peace, the thing that we feel inside, tranquility maybe. But the Jewish version of this isn't necessarily like that. It isn't about um, 
about being calm on the inside. Rather, the Jewish notion of shalom is very relational. It's peace between people. It's peace between a person and God, between a person and uh, his or her community, uh, um, between a husband and wife, between parents and children. The relationship um, is characterized by shalom. And it's better to think of it as balance. It might even um, be beneficial to say that it's about equilibrium. In, in other words, in the relationship, everybody is living up to their responsibilities. Every person has a responsibility in a relationship. You do. Think about it uh, with your spouse or with your kids or with um, other members of your family. There's a certain responsibility that you have. Uh, to them. And then everyone's living up to the responsibility in the relationship. There's shalom. And I think ultimately what James is pointing out is that favoritism erodes shalom. It throws the relationships out of balance. So you have this individual who comes in who is wealthy and he's told to sit in one spot. But the person who is clearly not wealthy is told to stand or to sit on the floor. And so the relationship changes. Frankly, I believe we're seeing this dramatically in American um, culture today. We're seeing a distinct lack of shalom. You have partiality on one side and you have favoritism on the other. And it seems like those things are moving away from each other and it is tearing the entire country apart. There's no balance, there's no shalom. We just see it all over. Nothing but um, movement away from each other. Uh, the term I think now is polarization. Polarization in this case is the opposite of shalom. It's not what God has in mind for his people. It's not how um, human cultures can actually, you know, work for mutual benefit. See, here's the interesting thing to me, is that people um, scream about their rights. And, and it's true. I mean, we have a Bill of Rights. We have amendments to the Constitution that guarantee certain rights to our, our citizenry. But what I find really fascinating is that in the same conversation, nobody is talking about responsibility, which is the element of shalom. And the reality is that for every single right that we have, there is also a set of corresponding responsibilities. Let's think of it in very basic terms. We have the right to free speech. People have the right to believe whatever they want to believe and to speak about it. Whether I agree with it or not, they have the right to free speech. However, there's a responsibility to that free speech. A person can't just walk into a crowded room and yell, fire, if there isn't one. That's illegal. The responsibility is to... Um, guard that free speech and use it in a responsible way. So rights and responsibilities go hand 
in hand and all we see now are everybody's rights moving in different directions. And there's favoritism, there's partiality, and the sides are getting picked, and their polarization is tearing the country apart. There is no shalom. And by the way, um, you've heard me say this before. doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on politically. Both are guilty. And I think all of us bear a certain responsibility to trying to recapture civility in discussion, civility in debate, to actually act responsibly for the people around us and try to restore this notion of, of shalom. But back to the business at hand. The church ought to be different and without partiality and without favoritism. This is the context that, that, uh, that our friend James is, is talking about here. That it should be different. It should, it should look different. It should feel different. There shouldn't be partiality for it. Why? Why is that? Why should the church be different? Well, here it is. Because God loves every single person equally and perfectly. Doesn't matter where they are, he loves them equally and he loves them perfectly. And his people ought to reflect that love with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. That doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. In fact, I, I know that as a church, church leader, we don't get it right all the time. But the point is, is that that's the thing that we're striving for. That's the thing we're asking the Holy Spirit uh, to help us with in our interactions with other people. We want um, people to feel welcome. We don't want partiality. We don't want favoritism because God loves people equally and perfectly, and we should attempt to reflect that. In other words, the shalom ought to be evident in the, the things that we're doing. Mm. So I think that James is saying here, at least in part, to the scattered churches, you're settling. You're settling for something less um, than what God has in mind. And, and by the way, I think the other side of that is it's costing you. It's costing you. You shouldn't show favoritism. Why? Because it erodes shalom. You, you're settling for something less than what God has in mind, and it's costing you balance and equilibrium. It's costing you something. You might not even be aware that it's costing you something, but it is. I think that's part of James' message to these churches and frankly to us as well. Which leads me, ultimately, to the real life question. Um, that place where we begin to, to look at the text and say, okay, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for today? And here it is, here's the real life question. Where are you settling? Where is it that you're settling and it's costing you something and you may not even recognize that it is, but where might you be settling? Now, I want you to hit the pause button though, because I think this is really important and you need to, to look at this question on the screen, but you need to hear what I'm about to say because I think this is so important. This question is not meant 
to condemn you. It is not a condemnation. It is not about you measuring up to some standard. It's not like there's this, you know, list of rules that you're supposed to follow and if you don't, somebody's going to scold you. That's not what we're talking about here. And if you're hearing kind of those condemning um, thoughts coming into your mind that somehow that you've settled for something, therefore you've not measured, measured up and you're not good enough or you're not holy enough, mm, that's not from God. That is not from him. You need to stop that line of thinking because it's not true. Rather, I want to ask um, more to the point. Where in your life do you feel like things are out of whack? Where do, you, where do you think things might be off track just a little bit? My grandmother had this, this term that um, still makes me smile to this day. She called it ski-jawed. I have no idea what that means. But sometimes you just feel like there's something in your life that's just ski-jawed. It's just, it just isn't right. And it's, and it's bugging you. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but maybe you can. But my guess is you, you probably know what it is. Maybe it's a relational thing, most likely. Not always, but most likely. Or maybe there's something you're struggling with internally. Look, here's the thing. If it's relational and you're feeling off track, out of whack, ski jawed, if you're feeling those kinds of things, my guess is that you're missing some type of shalom. You're missing that balance. You're missing, <laughs> you're missing that equilibrium. Mm. You know, instead of offering you, you know, five things that you can do to try to rebalance your life and your relationships, I'm going to offer you one thing. Actually, probably come up with 10 or 12 things. We probably have a discussion and come up with a whole bunch more to make your life um, more balanced. But really, if you want the type of shalom that, that the ancient Hebrews chased after, that they, they wanted more than anything else, if they want that kind of balance, that kind of equilibrium, then there's only one thing you can do, and that's simply to connect with God, to chase after his presence and allow him to shape you. And I know this sounds kind of like a broken record, but it really is the only path forward. See, here's the thing. I can't change you. There's nobody on the Thrive Church staff that can actually change anything about you, that can put things back together the right way. Now, we might be able to help in some way, and we certainly want to be a resource for you, but we can't do it. We don't have that power, and, and frankly, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to point you back to the one who can, to the great healer, to the great physician, to the great counselor, to the person who was put on this earth to put things back to rights, to re try to reconnect you back to Jesus through his Holy Spirit. There really is the only path forward for all of us. And so if you're feeling um, like you're settling, if you're feeling a little bit off, I'm just going to encourage you to, to stop and try to reconnect in some way. And look, you're, you may not get it in the first shot. It's okay. But if you, if you 
kind of slow down and listen. Well, first you got to ask him, but ask God, what's off? Why is this off? You might know what it is. Why is this off? God, what do I do about this? And then listen. I believe he's going to answer you because the God we serve is the God of shalom. He's the one of balance and equilibrium. He's not the God of confusion. Pastor Dan talks about that all the time. He's not a God of confusion. He wants to put things back in order. We may not understand everything because we're human, but he does and he will begin to write things, to balance things out, to cause the equilibrium, but you've got to connect with him. You have to make that effort. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know everything about each one of us. You know where um, things are not aligned. You know where things are off balance. You know those clunky parts of our lives. And so for every person that's listening, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them in a way that they would fully understand and that it would be um, in such a way that it would build trust in you. Lord, you have been faithful to us time and time again. And so for the person who has settled for something less than what you had in mind, God, as they try to connect with you, would you please meet them exactly where they're at and begin to move them forward into a deeper relationship where they hear your voice and continue to follow you. And we're going to thank you in advance for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.